We are in the second week of a five-week series where we're dealing with really crazy, stupid, foolish stuff that Christians believe. Now, in church, it might seem ridiculous to say something like that, even a bit sacrilegious, to talk about the craziness of parts of our faith. But it's very fitting, as we'll see, as we dive in a little bit into the scriptures and into the story of the two criminals on the cross. Did you catch when Tim did his reading just a few minutes ago that the criminals on the cross had two very different attitudes about their placement on the cross next to Jesus? One of them had a specific attitude and the other had a specifically different attitude. And as we dive in, what we're doing is we're exploring various aspects of the life that we live when we follow Jesus into resurrection. Now, V said just a couple of minutes ago that Jesus died on the cross for us and took away all our sin. In the eyes of some in the world, that's foolish enough as it is. But God doesn't ever just do what's required. God always takes a truth and takes it a next step further and takes it a next step further and takes it a next step further so that he can dive the deepest, deepest possible places into the depths of our hearts. God is good at that. He's good at digging deep, which is why we stop and have a message every Sunday when we gather here at Burkett. God digs deep with us, tracks with us, he walks with us. And so what he did is he not only died on the cross, but he also rose again from the grave. How many days later? Three days later, you know the story. And then he ascended into heaven. And while he was ascending into heaven, some angels descended and basically told the disciples, stop looking up into the sky and do what? Go. And the reason he told them that is because the grace of God is not only good for us, but it also works through us to reach other people's lives who are outside the kingdom of God and who don't want to hear about the grace of God, who don't want to accept the grace of God for whatever reason. You see, this is not an exception to the rule. We are all in a position where we refuse the grace of God at some point. Our humanity causes us to do that. But by doing something so audacious as going to the grave and then turning and rising again from the grave, God demonstrates exactly how far he's willing to go to reach the heart of you and me. So today, as we explore this story, what we're going to do is take a little bit closer look at the two criminals on the cross. Now, we don't know exactly what their crimes were. Let's just put it that way. They could have done just about anything. Some translations call them thieves. Now, maybe they just did petty crime and stole stuff. We don't know. Maybe they were insurrectionists. Maybe they were fighting against the oppression of Rome. We talk about that here sometimes. We really don't know what their crimes were, but we know that they were being crucified with Jesus as sort of a class of criminal that has to go all the way to the cross. Not all criminals would be crucified, but the Romans could crucify anybody for just about anything back then. In fact, when they crucified somebody, it could be a man, could be a woman, or it could be even a child. It was one of the cruelest forms of capital punishment. And basically the way it worked was you were nailed up on the cross, stark naked. And sometimes your crime was posted above the cross, which is why Jesus had a little sign. You ever wondered why on crucifixes that little signs up there? The sign is up there because that's his charge. 
he was charged with calling himself the king of the Jews. And so he got a lot of scoffing at him. He got a lot of ridicule as he was headed toward the cross. And this is kind of an analysis. Now, we don't go too far into an analysis with this this morning, but it's a basic analysis of the differences between the attitudes of the two criminals on the cross. We have one who, as Jesus was hanging there, scoffed at him along with all the officials that were gathered around at Jesus' feet. And kind of the message that, uh, that the criminal had for Jesus was what? If you're the son of God, which is what's painted on the sign over your head, then prove it by doing what? By defying the physical circumstances you find yourself in and come down from the cross and save yourself. And then he said, by the way, while you're at it, go ahead and get us down from the cross too. It was almost an attitude of, of joking, almost like, Jesus, you're a big joke, man. You are the fakest thing uh, since fake news. And you are not going to come down off that cross. And I'm not going to come down off that cross either. And this is all just for naught. And we ought to just go ahead and die. So while I'm up here suffering, I'm going to take you with me. Psychologically and emotionally, I'm going to take you, Jesus, with me. Because I'm suffering here on the cross for what I did. Now, this is a very dark, despairing situation that you see this guy kind of wallering in as he's scoffing and he's joking at Jesus. But now the guy on the other cross had a very different attitude, didn't he? He advocated for Jesus. He basically said, no, this guy doesn't deserve this because they knew that he was not a criminal. They knew that he was not an insurrectionist. They knew that he was not at fault for being anything other than kind. Because Jesus' record told otherwise. Jesus' record was that he healed people. He cared for people. He loved them. He fed them. He took care of them. And that's what he was guilty of. But people called him what he really was, the king of the Jews. And this was a threat to the political system of the day. So this criminal was advocating for him and was calling him out as a kind leader. Even so, the criminal doesn't really say, save us and take us down from the cross. The criminal says, guess what? The evidence is against you and me. We have evidence against us. We've committed crimes or insurrections or stolen. We've done those things and it's provable. But the only thing that's provable against Jesus is that he was loving and kind and powerful and truthful. And so Jesus is called out for these things. And the only thing the criminal says to him to ask him is to remember him, the criminal, when he comes into his kingdom. Now, the question for today is this. What happened with this criminal between the time that he was captured for doing his crime and the time that he found himself on the cross hanging beside Jesus? We don't really know. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what changed. But what we do know is that the criminal was next to Jesus. Jesus dared to be close to him by engaging him in conversation. And what does Jesus promise him at the end of that conversation? He says to him a promise because this cannot be proven while the man is still alive and hanging on the cross. He says a promise. He says, I promise today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, some translations say it like this. I promise you today, sort of comma, you're going to be with me in paradise. 
We don't split hairs about whether or not it was actually today. What we're focused on is the idea that the man's going to be with him in paradise. And that that's a promise. And there's nothing that the criminal could have done in his past to earn that. There's nothing that the criminal could have done in that moment to earn that ticket into paradise. There's no word that that criminal could have spoken in that situation to make himself righteous enough to earn God's love. Instead, the love of God and that ticket into paradise was granted to him by Jesus for free. It's just like V said earlier, the gift of the good news of Jesus is free. It's free for the receiving and it's free for the giving. You see, whether we approach God with a posture that is either like the criminal on the left scoffing or the criminal on the right advocating for God and standing up for him, the truth of the matter is, and this is the most foolish part of it all, the truth of the matter is that Jesus died for them both. He dies for every single person. Whether that person calls him God and King and Savior or not. And that is foolish and audacious in a world where you and I have to earn favor, do we not? If you work a job, you have to earn the favor of your boss. If you're a student, you have to earn the favor of your teacher. If you're a business person, you have to earn the favor of your customers and clients. Is this not true? But in the kingdom of God, it's different. In the kingdom of God, there is no earning to be done. In the kingdom of God, whether you find yourself on the left cross or the right cross, you're up on the cross without God. You're up a creek without a paddle. You have no hope. There's only despair. There's only death. There's only end. But then you look and you find Jesus right there. Jesus is not down there at your feet calling you to come down. Jesus is not levitating above you like Casper the friendly ghost calling you to rise up to him. Jesus is there beside you doing what is required to earn your love, which is dying for you. Did you ever wonder why he had to die? You know, he died to pay the penalty for our sin, as V said amply before. That's absolutely true. He died to pay the penalty of our sin. Death gets our attention, doesn't it? Because one day you and me will both die. But then the question becomes, what happens next? Is there something afterward? You know, sometimes we have a hard time hearing this message and receiving it. When we are kids... We find ourselves in a position of being fun of sometimes, being made out to be sort of foolish. Do you remember the last time as a kid you were made fun of? What was it about? For me, it was my quarter-inch thick Coke bottle glasses. This was in the 70s before thin lens came out. And it's also before contact, soft contact lenses were invented. Now, I'm only 29 years old or so, but... This dates me just a little bit. Right when the time came for soft contact lenses to be invented, I was about nine years old, and it changed my whole life because I didn't have to look through those Coke bottle glasses anymore. I used to get called four eyes. I used to call all kinds of unpleasant names. In fact, when I would be standing up at the, at the plate getting ready to hit the baseball, the baseball would come at me in a curve, and I couldn't hit it. 
because my glasses were so thick, the ball looked like it was curving at me. And it wasn't a curveball, okay? We were nine, right? But it just looked weird. And then when that day came, when I was able to see clearly, it was just like a miracle. It was amazing. But have you ever thought about what it's like to encounter being made fun of for the first time? There's a part of your heart that dies in that moment, doesn't it? And maybe you can connect with that pain. There's a part of your heart that dies. That moment when people are pointing at you and laughing at you, and you feel like a fool, there's a part of your heart that goes dark, recesses and turns inward toward itself, and it dies. Or maybe you've been through a breakup. Remember in your 20s where you dated somebody that you thought were it, was it, and it didn't turn out to be that way. They weren't it after all. The it they were was something else, and it fell apart, and your heart was broken. If you've ever been through that before, there's a part of your heart that turns inward on itself and dies. It becomes dark. Maybe you've had somebody in a position of authority over you, a pastor, a teacher, a priest, a boss, a spouse, you know, somebody who claimed an authority over you and did something to you that hurt you. When that happened, there's a part of your heart that grows dark and dies, and it turns inward on itself. And it causes itself to be defensive and put up a wall. This is the part of us that Jesus came to redeem. And what he does when he does that is he causes us to understand what it means to hurt and to have pain. And he causes us to understand what it means to be able to say or hear the words, I'm sorry, or to repent in Bible language. We learn about sorry when we get hurt. And we get hurt even more when the person who hurts us never says they're sorry for hurting us, don't we? When they owe us an apology and it never comes. Or if we hurt someone and we never get the gumption up to go and apologize to whatever it is we did. There's a brokenness in that relationship that exists between us. That is mainly caused by pride. And here's what I mean by that. Pride has a number of different meanings in our culture. It's the kind of pride that says, I've been hurt, or I hurt, and I don't want to hurt again. I've been hurt, or I do hurt now, and I don't want to be hurt again. It's a part of our pride where our pride gets hurt, and we close up, and we shut down, and we become dark, and we embrace despair. But God says, I think I see the problem. Sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. If you're listening by podcast, there's a guy with the hood up on a car, and he says, I think I see what the problem is, but his car is submerged in water. Sometimes we find ourselves trying to look under the hood of life, not realizing that the problem we're encountering is bigger than the issue we're looking for. Sometimes we don't get it. Why we hurt, why we have pain, why we have despair why we can't ask for forgiveness, or why we can't grant forgiveness. Sometimes we don't get that. Sometimes there's a disconnect, and we don't understand what it is about us that keeps us from enjoying forgiveness and then turning and passing it to someone else. We'll find the key in God's heart. Now, God's heart never breaks, but if it were to break, it would be on the day his son died. 
His son died so that he could win your heart. His son died so that all the sin that you were born into and did in your past and do on this very day and will do a week, a month, a year, and a decade from now, all that sin will be taken away from you. Your record is wiped clean. You no longer have a criminal record in the eyes of God. It's not because of how good you are. It's not because of how much you went to church or whether you were in a small group. It's not because of how many hymns you sung or how high your hands were raised. It has nothing to do with what you did or did not do. It has to do with what Jesus did and did not do. What did he do? He went to the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin. And the Bible says this, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now, this is where it gets foolish and confusing if you're not used to dealing with the concept. That's okay. This is a safe place for us to deal with the concept. Now, if you look up a churchy word called justification, can you say justification with me, please? Justification. If you were in catechism class or had some kind of religious class in the past, maybe you heard this word in a religious context. Basically, what it means is this. And by the way, this is according to Google, the source of all things wise and true. If you look at Google's justification definition down under number two, theology. Can you read this with me, please? One, two, three. The action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. Did you notice that it didn't say the action of you earning your way into God's good grace? You have been made righteous. And that's not something you can do. That is something that is done to you. It is something that is done for you. And it is something that is done through you into the lives of others who don't know or understand that basic message. The idea is this. The idea is that Jesus died, rose again, and makes a new life available for all people. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people? How many? I'm sorry. Now, is that the sinners too? Like you and me? Is that the people who go to church? Uh, sure. Is it the people who don't want to go to church? Yes. How many people did Jesus die for? All. All means all, right? That's not an inference. It's not a suggestion. It's all people. And he makes a new life available for all of us. Here's another churchy word. That's called objective justification. If you're taking notes today, go ahead and take your time jotting down all the fun theological terms. This is called objective justification. It means that Jesus died for the sins of all humans throughout all time. There's an, another form of justification called subjective justification. And that's where it gets to you and me. Subjective justification means what I choose to do with that information and who gets the credit for the choice. Here's what that means. When somebody says Jesus died for you, you have the right to say, so what? You have the freedom to say that. And if you say that, God doesn't love you any less than the person who says, I receive it and accept it. Now that's utter, total 
foolishness, isn't it? But that is how God plays ball. God does not hold a record of wrongs through Jesus. He offers the freedom that Jesus brings to you and me, to all people, through all time, at all times, in all of their life. Even when we say, no thank you, God. And especially when we say, no thank you, God. And in fact, we also know in the scripture that the reason why God has not ended times now and sent Jesus back on the clouds is because the Bible says very clearly, if you don't believe me, Google it. He says that I'm patient and I'm waiting for as many people as possible to join me in my kingdom. He's patient. He is waiting for the good news to take root in a dark heart like mine, to shine light on it, to heal it, and to turn it around. He's waiting for the last moment, for the very last moment. And then when his son returns, we'll all know it. But he's not going to send him back until he's got every last one that he can. That is the love of God for you and for me. Here's what that means in regards to the past. Now, V shared with us earlier that our past is not fatal. We can say it this way. Your past, your version of the past is fatal. Your version of the way you see your past is deadly. Your version of the way you see the past is dark and full of despair. Your version of the way you see the past has an end where you just disappear and there's no more of you left. God's version of your past is different. God's version of your past says this. It says, yes, your past was painful. And at the same time, Jesus died for that pain. Yes, your past was broken. And at the same time, Jesus died for that past that is broken. Your past is beyond repair. But Jesus died for that past and ultimately heals it, not because of what you did after your past, but because of what Jesus did in your past and in spite of your past. And in fact, he even says this, your future is not dependent upon your past. Your future is not dependent upon what you did when you hurt that person. Your future is not dependent upon what happened to you when you were hurt and cannot forgive that person. Your future is dependent upon God and his power and his ability to overcome that brokenness. And then that informs you and me as to how our present is. God's version of the present is different than a version of the present where you find yourself in despair. God's version of the present in your life is a life of peace. It's a life of hope. It's a life where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have God's forgiveness, not because of what you've done or did not do, but because of what? Say it out loud. Because of what Jesus did and did not do. Now, I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. I have a past that if I put that past up on the screen, you would riot and you would physically remove me from the front of the altar area. That's how bad I've been. You don't want to know the details. 
I promise. It would be discouraging to you. It might even make you feel sorry for me. But the best news of all is that Jesus died for that stuff too. And it's gone. It's as far as the east is from the west. And by the way, if you take a globe and spin it around at home, where does east and west stop? Doesn't, does it? It's a circle, isn't it, B? It is endless and eternal. And that's how far God goes to win your heart and win my heart. So as we close today on diving deeper, I want to challenge you. If you've never heard the good news of Jesus in the way it was intended before, hear it as plain as I can make it in this failed human flesh. It's not about what you did or did not do. It's about Jesus and what he did and did not do. What he did was he died and then he rose and then he lives. Can you say that with me? He died and then he rose and then he lives. The good news of Jesus has those three parts in it. He died, he rose for you and me and he lives in you and me. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for giving us a new life, a life that is yours, a life that is claimed by you, where you place a seal of approval on me and you choose me to be your child. The Bible says that I am adopted as a child of God, which means I was chosen by him and I was set aside for his purposes to share that good news with others as it comes up in average everyday conversation. God, I, re I recognize before you that sometimes the gospel, the good news of Jesus is just absolute utter uh, audacity. It's just foolish. And in those moments, God, I recognize that I am weak before you and that sometimes I just don't trust you. But the good news is, is that your son Jesus died for that too. And that mistrust and that holding you back is gone in his name. If I trust you, will you be there for me? God says, I already told you. I'm always going to be there and I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. I have chosen you as mine through what Jesus did on the cross. Work that work in my heart today, God, in the darkest places that I hold back. I ask that you come and shine your light so that those places may be healed and that I may truly understand who I am to you. In your name we pray and together we say amen and amen.